Good morning, South Bucks. Thanks so much for inviting me to speak today. It's a real privilege, and I'm glad to be speaking on the next part of our series, Adventures in Faith with Abraham. And we're looking at chapters 13 and 14 of Genesis. And our title is How Meekness Changes the World. How Meekness Changes the World. There's a great deal of meekness in these two chapters, which we'll look at in just a moment. But part of the reason we're looking at Abraham is because he faced tough challenges in his life. And let's face it, you and I are today in our current circumstances. And the question for us to wrestle with ourselves and congregationally is how does how is our faith going to help us to handle the latest tests to uh, our lives that God has brought in or allowed in? We have many challenges right now, but so did Abraham. Now, chapter 12 we looked at last week, we saw some of the blessings that were promised to him but also some of the challenges he faced with the famine and the way that he um, didn't deal so well with that. Now, at the beginning of chapter 13, we find him back in the land of the promise. And because we're looking at two chapters here, I'm not going to read all of chapters 13 and 14. So let me read a few selected parts to give us the feel for the overview of what's going on here in Abraham's life and the people around him. So at the beginning of chapter 13, he goes back to the Negev, uh, to the Negev with his wife and everybody, and lots and everybody. And he's very wealthy. He's got a lot of silver and gold and livestock. And he goes uh, through the Negev and then from place to place until he comes to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, uh, where he had first built an altar. So he's going back, in a sense, to the beginning. And there he called on the name of the Lord. We don't hear God speaking to him here, which we'll talk about in a moment, but he does call on the name of the Lord. Now, Lot is with him, and he also is blessed by being associated with Abraham, and so he has a lot of possessions, flocks, herds, tents, and there's a quarrel between the two sets of herdsmen, Abraham's and Lot's. Abraham takes initiative and says to Lot, let's not have any quarreling uh, between you and me, your herders and mine. We're relatives, aren't we? Is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. He gives him a choice. Lot looks around, sees that the whole plain of Jordan is well watered, like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, which is a bit of a problematic comparison. Um, and so Lot chooses, what does he choose? He chooses the plain of Jordan, sets out towards the east, which is quite significant. They parted company, Abraham stayed where he was, and, and Lot went east towards uh, near, it says near Sodom, verse 12. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and greatly, sinning greatly against the Lord. Then the Lord appears to Abraham again and speaks to him. And he tells him, look around, north, south, east, west. All the land you see, I'll give to your, off your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring like dust. And before they were stars and then sand, and now they're dust. I mean, just, just an incredible promise, like dust. So much, so much, uh, so many offspring. There'll be dust, if you could count the dust. So go walk through the length and breadth of the land. I'm giving it to you. And so he does that and he pitches his tent. And he builds an altar, another altar. Then chapter 14. What's going on in chapter 14? Lots of war, basically. Lots of kings, which I won't uh, read right now all their names because I can't pronounce them all correctly. But lots of kings uh, making alliances and fighting each other and fighting each other's alliances. And lots of battles. And as part of this, Lot and his people and his possessions are captured. Verse 12 of chapter 14, they carry off Abraham's nephew Lot and all his possessions. Abraham hears about this from someone who's escaped, and it says that he, when he heard that, he called out his 318 trained men, born in his household, went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, he divided his men to attack them, routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus, recovered all the goods, 
and uh, and brought back his nat- uh, relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. So a tremendous rescue, uh, risky. Uh, Abraham shown to be courageous and a good tactician by the look of it. He returns and then the king of Sodom comes out to meet him. And then also Melchizedek comes out to meet him. Priest of God Most High, he blesses Abraham and says, blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Praise be to the God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. And then the king of Sodom, who appears to be also there, says to Abraham, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abraham says to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I've sworn an oath to the Lord, uh, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Ana, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Wow, there's a lot going on in these two chapters, and so we're not, again, going to dig into every detail, but I do think there's some threads here and some themes that are very significant for us understanding Abraham and his faith and what it means for us to have that kind of adventurous faith, and in particular, how to handle the challenges that come our way. And we are facing a lot of challenges at the moment. The extension to the lockdown, I suppose, is the next phase of God refining us as people of faith and as a church. How will we, re- we respond now to the extended period of not seeing our parents, our relatives, doing more homeschooling, uh, not being able to hug our friends, not having physical church service together for another month or two or three or who knows exactly how long? We're in a tough place. Abraham's world was a tough place. He's got a lot of conflict going on. Conflict with his relatives, Lot, uh, wars, which he's uh, caught up in. Of course, that's following the famine that he's just had. I mean, what? perhaps those are the three of the most scary challenges of all. Famine, war, and family conflict. And he faces all of these in quick succession right here. So, how can we summarize Abraham's perspective, his attitude, and his character here? How is his faith expressed and, if you like, evidenced by the way that he lives? I would say it's in meekness. The word meek is not used in this uh, in these two chapters, but I think it's the, it's the core quality that we see in Abraham in terms of how his faith is expressed. How does his faith get expressed? Through meekness. You remember last year, a, a year ago, we did the Sermon on the Mount series and we looked through the Beatitudes. And of course, one of them is Matthew 5, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the earth. Looks a bit like the kind of promise that is given to Abraham. Your descendants will be like the dust. Looks like he's going to inherit the land, inherit the earth in some sense. Meekness. What is meekness? Um, Carson, one of the uh, New Testament commentators I've read, said, meekness is a controlled desire to see the other's interests advance ahead of your own. We see that here. That's what it's like. Uh, R.T. France, one of the other commentators I've read, uh, who are the meek? They are those who do not throw their weight around. (laughs) They don't throw their weight around. And again, Abraham is somebody here who's not throwing his weight around, especially we see towards the end there with the king of Sodom, when he could have taken a lot more um, of uh, of the possessions he rescued, but he refuses to. He doesn't throw his weight around with Lot or the king of Sodom or anybody else. Jordan B. Peterson said, some, Peterson said something like this. I heard him in a, a talk. He said, meek people are those who know how to use a sword. They're skilled in, in using it. They know how to use a sword, but they keep it in its sheath. And I think we, we can understand that. That's, there's a meekness which is both gentle, merciful and kind, 
but it's allied to great strength. I don't know that we've seen a great deal of meekness in some of our world leaders recently, have we? But maybe we shouldn't be thinking too much about them, more about ourselves. See, I think Jesus lived this way. And so a disciple of Jesus lives this way, someone who's meek, looking for the benefit of others rather than ourselves. And Abraham, in terms of a human, a human uh, flesh and blood uh, person we can relate to, uh, lived it in particular circumstances of challenge. And I think we can learn a lot about our faith, our faith and his faith, by looking at the way that he expressed his faith in meekness. So firstly, meekness, what does it do for us? And what did it do for Abraham here? Meekness takes us back to God. Meekness takes us back to God. When we've strayed, we've wandered, we've been a little bit loose in our connection with God. Meekness takes us back. See, the way that Abraham responded to the challenges in chapter 12, remember that uh, he tried to pass off his wife as his sister, and there were plagues, and uh, uh, what does this say? It's serious diseases. Sorry, that's right. Serious diseases are inflicted upon Pharaoh by the Lord. Uh, Pharaoh recognizes what's going on, realizes that Sarai is Abraham's wife, and says, what are you doing to me? and sends him off, uh, gets rid of him. I mean, gave orders that they be sent on their way. He pushes them way out of sight and mind, and that's why they come back through the Negev back into the land they had before. And so um, you can imagine if you were Abraham, at least for me, I'd be coming back to the land of the promise, but I'd be coming back with my tail between my legs, like, oh, I messed up. I, I'm supposed to be the man of faith. I'm supposed to be the one chosen by God. I'm the one God has said he will bless me with, uh, uh, I'll make it, you'll make him into a great nation. Uh, all people on earth will be blessed through you. I mean, this, that's who I'm supposed to be, but who am I really? I'm the kind of guy that responds to the famine by, by looking after myself, by looking out for my own interests. I've let my wife down. I've let my household down. I've let God down. I've, I, I mean, yeah. And, and you could forgive Abraham for a little bit of self-pity here. But, but what is his response? His response is to go back to the land and to go to the first place where he had pitched his tent and where he had first built an altar and he called on the name of the Lord. So he's meek in his, in his response to the discipline that God gives him and to his failure. It is a failure. Nothing's any way around that. But he recognizes somehow that his failure is not fatal. It's not that he's so fundamentally flawed that he can't still be close to God, used by God. He goes back to God to put things right, I would say. He's been humbled in Egypt, but he doesn't sulk. I don't know about you, but I, I struggle with this. When I, when I make a mistake, I, I, um, I speak to someone in the way I shouldn't, or I, I make a false assumption, or I just get something wrong, or I let somebody down, and it happens all the time. Uh, my temptation is to sulk is and is to blame shift but he doesn't do that he goes back to reconnect with god in fact he does more of what we talked about last week which he does some more listening he goes back and calls on the name of the lord he puts himself in a position to hear again from god even though interestingly enough even though at this point god does not return that um, uh, respond, I should say. Uh, God does not speak to him yet. Now, he does later in the chapter, but we'll come to that in a moment. But it's interesting that we see Abraham calling on the name of the Lord, but no response. Does that mean God is not with him? Does it mean God does not accept him? I don't believe so. I think what it's saying is that Abraham's learning to worship God through the dry times. He's learning to worship God through the, through the dry times. 
the times that are effectively a preparation for something that God has in mind further down the line. Abraham understands what it's like to continue to worship and be devoted even when you're not getting much back. And you and I experience those times, don't we? Um, I've been through many dry times in my Christian life. Times when prayer didn't seem to mean anything, didn't seem to make any difference. Times when I read my Bible, but it it didn't seem to be helping me or strengthening me. It seemed that I was going through motions of prayer, motions of Bible study, motions of spiritual disciplines. Nothing much was coming back. We've all had times like that. Maybe you're having a time like that at the moment. I would counsel you to say, that doesn't mean there's something fundamentally wrong with you. It may just be that this is a dry time that you need. You need it, perhaps, to be dry. You need to persist and pers- please do persevere in your times of quiet with God, in your devotion to God, in your worship of God, even though you may not feel like it, even though you may not be getting much back. That's okay. There are times like that, and God is still working. These are times of preparation. I believe this is what prepared Abraham to handle the situation with Lot with a a godly meekness, to handle it better than he'd handled the situation when he went down to Egypt. This is a preparation. How do we respond to sin, to guilt and regret? We go back to God in meekness. And whatever you've done, be assured that there is a warm welcome from God waiting for you. Remember how the father welcomed the prodigal warmly. This is how God feels towards you and I when we return to him after a time of of struggle and straying and weakness. So how do you know if you are meek? How can you express your meekness? By consistent devotion to the Lord. Consistent devotion to the Lord. We go to God even when he doesn't speak. We're strengthened by God then whether we notice it or not, and we're equipped by God whether we notice it or not, getting ready for what comes next. It looks to me like this sort of quiet time that Abraham has here prepares him for the next challenge. So firstly, meekness meekness takes us back to God. Secondly, meekness helps us to act like God. In the next part of the account here, we have the dispute between Lot and Abraham, and Abraham gives him the choice of what he wants to do. Indeed, this is the final conversation that we have that's recorded with Lot. What a sad thing. The last conversation, at least we know they had, is one where they went separate ways. Lot, what's he looking for here? Lot is seeking the material over the spiritual. Rather than stay in the land of the promise, he's prepared to go somewhere else because it looks better to him, more materially uh, blessed. He's moving east. East is very significant in the Bible. Of course, when uh, um, Adam and Eve left the garden and when Cain was banished, what direction did they all go in? East. Uh, Lot's descendants will be in the east. We have a a lot. Lot is uh, not looking for God's direction here, but for what fits with his more carnal appetites, I suppose we might say. Now, Abraham deals with this in a a brilliant way, and it's an excellent example of how to deal with a dispute. We don't have time to go into that now. That's a whole lesson in itself, the way that he takes initiative, the way that he discusses the problem, the way that, I mean, there's a lot there. I have put some notes uh, in the show notes for the podcast I've done on this particular section. So you might want to look at that, the Quiet Time Coaching Podcast, the Adventures in Faith with Abraham uh, devotional, daily devotional podcast that's coming out. Uh, That's already up, and you'll see some show notes there that might help you. Brilliant example of how to deal with a dispute, but we won't talk about that in detail right now. But what we do see is grace and meekness go together. Abraham is full of grace in this situation with Lot. 
He could be forgiven for saying, oh, you ungrateful nephew, you're younger than me, I'm responsible for you, you've been with me, you've been blessed because of your association with me, you've got all these herds and flocks and possessions, and, and how, are you, how are you rewarding me? How are you uh, showing your gratitude by, by, uh, by, by taking what you want? But um, Abraham doesn't seem to be too spiritually bothered by that. Uh, remember last time, Abraham tried to control his fate. This time, he gives up control. He's not dominating the decision-making, but allowing Lot to make his decision. Uh, Abraham is content with whatever land is left over. He's not, it's not necessarily the best land. He's just content with whatever God gives him. That's a good, uh, good lesson for many of us, and myself included. He's seeking the benefit of the undeserving here. Lot does not deserve to make this choice, but Abraham wants what's best for Lot, or at least wants Lot to make the choice. Reminds me a bit of Jesus, what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 7, where he describes Jesus and tells uh, the followers of Jesus how to respond and how to imitate it. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, uh, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in nature, very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So meekness. What is meekness? Meekness is demonstrated by generosity. Generosity inspired by God's generosity to us, of course. That's the inspiration for it. But it's demonstrated by generosity. In what ways might you and I be tempted into self-preservation? Looking after number one. How does that tempt you? It probably tempts you and me a little bit differently. We're all tempted to it. And we all succumb to that temptation from time to time. Do you know yourself? Do you know the kinds of ways that you're tempted into self-preservation rather than caring for the, the needs of others? Are you generous by nature? Would people say of you, that's a generous man, that's a generous woman? It, it, generosity is something that, that we see in God. And when we're spiritually minded, then we see it in one another and in ourselves. Now, if you struggle with generosity, and I'll confess I do, uh, then the way to deal with that is not to make yourself be generous, like, I will be generous, I will make myself. It's, it, it doesn't, it's not going to work. So we're not looking here for moral conformity. That's not the point of a sermon. It's not the point of the scripture. It's not to just get us to behave right. If we're lacking in generosity, then we're lacking in our connection with the generous God. We're lacking in uh, inspiration from the source of generosity. So rather than try and make yourself be generous, my suggestion would be take some time to look through the scriptures and examine the, the places where it demonstrates God's generosity to you and I, and let that be the inspiration for you to have a more generous spirit. That's what God will do. He will give you that generous spirit. Can we be generous at this time? At this time of challenge and lockdown, how can we be generous? How could you be more generous in your time, your efforts, your energy? How could you be a, a, a generous person for those around you who need you right now? So how do you know if you're meek? You're generous towards other people. 
Now then we see, by the way, before we just go on to our final third point, we do see this interlude here, verses 14 to 18 in chapter 13, where God does come now and speaks to Abraham. It's a bit like God saying, you got it right, Abraham. Last time in Egypt, mm -mm. but this time with Lot, yeah, you understood the right way to, to act. And he gives him these extra promises, north, south, east, west, offspring like dust, that you can't even count them. And you're going to get this land forever. Walk through it. I'm giving it to you. It's a wonderful promise. The promises here are more expansive than the previous promises and more detailed. And what does Abraham do at the end of all that? He builds another altar, celebrating God's mercy to him, is what I think, especially after what happened in Egypt. Egypt, worship, Lot, God appears. Okay, everything's all right. Uh, let me build an altar. And when we own our faults, um, then we are able to experience God's mercy. And then we celebrate and we draw closer to the heart of God. Now, the third thing that we see about meekness is chapter 14, which is meekness helps us to act courageously for God. Meekness helps us, or is an expression of, or is expressed by, acting courageously for God. And that's what Abraham does. I mean, all these kings are having their wars. Very dangerous for Abraham and everybody else. Uh, but Lot, of course, is the one captured. And Abraham goes off and rescues him. Very impressive what he does. We haven't got time to deal with all the details here now. But this courage of Abraham is an expression of his faith and is another part of what it means to be meek. Uh, Lot um, is, is <laughs> Lot creates a problem for Abraham, which is interesting in enough of itself. And Abraham is not now responsible. Lot's grown up, but he does... He does decide to act. It's not his fight, but compassion, I believe, moves him to action to help his nephew. He's firm against those who would harm Lot. He would not allow those he loved or felt responsible for to be taken advantage of. And I think that's like Jesus. Jesus loves you and I. And so he came to this earth and died on the cross because he, would, he refused. He refused to let uh, evil, Satan, the devil, sin and death have victory over us. He's like, though these are my beloved children, my brothers and sisters, I will not allow this to, to stand. I will come to this earth. I will live my life. I will die on the cross. Father will raise me from the dead and then we'll be able to be together again and everything will be healed, creation will be healed, will, and relationships will be healed and God's kingdom will come to its fullness. This is the heart of Jesus. He will not allow those being mistreated for that to continue if there's anything he could do in his power. And that's how we display that kind of meekness, that kind of I care for others more than myself, is by being strong and fighting for justice and for, and for the healing of people around us, whether in the church or outside. It's the sign of a mature Christian and a mature leader that they are both compassionate and merciful and generous, with the soft side of things, if you like, not soft in a negative way, but a strong in a positive way. They're compassionate, they're merciful, they're generous, they're patient, that side. But they are also courageous and sacrificial and strong and will not be pushed around. Jesus would not be pushed around. He was gentle. He was merciful. He could hold babies in his arm. Children sat in his lap. But he could stand up to Pilate, stand up to the high priest, stand up to the hypocrites, stand firm and do what was right. This is the mark of maturity. And we see some of this in Abraham. He's got the, the compassion and he's got the courage put together. And I think a lot of the Christian life for you and me is about growing and blending together more and more fully 
these parts of Jesus, this compassionate, soft, kind side, and a strong, firm, and courageous side, and blending these together. Not so much balancing them, I'm not sure you can put them in balance exactly, but, but melding them together in some kind of blend that means that we're then more, more like Christ, and truthfully, more able to be useful to God in his kingdom. Jesus was like this, full of, it says in John 1 verse 14, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. I see this in Abraham right here, strength in his leadership. He's well prepared. One of the things about being strong is that you're prepared. He's got 318 men trained, equipped and ready, which is quite something. He takes the initiative it, at great cost potentially to himself. His own life is in danger. He leads the attack. The time it takes to do this, we don't know how long, but it can't have been a, a couple of hours. The money involved, remember, his men on the battlefield are men not in his harvest fields. And potentially he or others that he cared about could die or be wounded. Great cost to him. There's an emotional and spiritual uh, cost too. He's got to overcome his perhaps understandable, uh, I would think, human tendency to feel like, well, Lot's getting what he deserves. <laughs> Just let him go. No, he's... he's caring about him. Abraham here is self-controlled and spiritual enough not to abandon Lot. Then we have the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom comes and says, give me the people, keep the goods for yourself. In the Hebrew, it's very strong. It's like a, it's a demand. It's like, give me, give that to me now. Give me the people. Uh, is uh, not kind. He's not grateful. He's not, Abraham, you are amazing. Thank you so much. Where would I be without you? He's like, give me the people. You can have the stuff. But Abraham says no. He's strong enough to say no to a king who could potentially have him killed. He says, no, I, um, I don't want to become rich on, by your hand. God is enough. God is the focus. See, God is the focus here, not the king, not Abraham himself. See, we're in a secure place with God when we realize that we are nothing, but God has chosen us. And then we're able to live a life of courageous faith. How do you know if you're meek? When you fight for the benefit of other people could be in prayer, or it could be engaging with the injustices in those people's lives and in the world around us. That's how we know we're meek. Well, let's wrap up by looking here at the blessings that come to Abraham with, uh, with Melchizedek. We'll pop back to verse 18 to 20. This uh, mysterious figure, Melchizedek, king of Salem, which we haven't got time to talk about right now, but the first person called a priest in the, uh, in the Bible comes out and blesses him. Blessed be Abraham by God, most high creator of heaven and earth, Praise be to the God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. The bread and wine is the kind of banquet you'd have with someone who is royal. So he's treating Abraham like a king. And Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. He does, no one tells him to. He just decides to. I think what we see here and earlier in chapter 13 is that each time Abraham uh, reacts to situations in a godly way, in a meek way, it brings a blessing. First, a reminder of an extension of the blessings in chapter 13. And now uh, uh, somebody else, somebody who's not connected to him directly, comes out and blesses him. And uh, Melchizedek, we presume, came to bless Abraham because he could see that God was with Abraham. How did he see that God was with Abraham? By the way that Abraham was meek. By the way that he was gracious and compassionate and kind. And the way that he was strong and firm and did all that he did because of his relationship with God. His adventurous faith led him to be noticed by others that God was with him. Now, Sodom didn't notice, the king of Sodom, but that's the king of Sodom's problem. But Melchizedek did notice. 
This is how we make a difference in the world, my friends. We make a difference in this world by being meek, connected to God, strength and gratitude from, from God so that we're able to be generous, draw close to God despite our guilt and sin at times, and live courageous lives. We're meek in our dependence on God. We're meek in our generosity to others. And we're meek in our courageous action, even at cost to ourselves. This is how we live a life of adventurous faith, inspired by God. People whose faith inspires them to live this way change the world and leave a spiritual legacy. Abraham's legacy lives on even now. You and I are part of that legacy. And it lives on into eternity, as it says in Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. It sounds like the dust of Abraham's descendants are populating heaven. That's the legacy he led. That's the legacy he left because of his meekness. I hope these thoughts have been helpful. The topic of meekness is very important. It's in the Beatitudes, but we see it here in Abraham. What might you and I learn from looking at his meekness and how we can imitate his faith, his adventurous faith, live a meek life to the glory of God, meek in our dependence on God, meek in our generosity, and meek in our courageous action. Thanks very much. Take care. God bless.